isn't that amazing about baseball that that you can play for 12 years and still be relatively under the radar yeah. and like football oh, absolutely you yeah. know football you're under the radar you're in, out of the league in two years but yeah. baseball i mean you can have a quiet 15 yes. year career yeah. it's pretty yeah. amazing yeah, and that was like, well, the, especially as a middle reliever, you know, like, yeah, I mean, yeah. we're the, the defensive lineman of yeah. football. So, I mean, nobody knows our name. <laughs> so I, and again, I know we want to get into your story here and we're already, we're already pressing record, uh, if that's all right. Um, I had a cousin who played minor league baseball and he was a, a middle reliever and he would talk about, it was the most bizarre thing. Cause he was starting pitcher in, in all growing up and in college, but he said changing a relief pitcher was odd because you show up to the stadium, you know, seven, eight hours early. And this is minor league ball, right? So you just got off a bus. You know the you know the drill. And he said, you may not play that day. And then you, <laughs> game's over, you get back on the bus, do it all over again the next day. He said it was a very odd, <laughs> very odd season for him. He only ended up playing one year. But anyway, yeah. yeah so middle relievers is a, if it's a good gig if you can get it and you can do well at it for sure. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you can throw some smoke and mirrors out there and, and get 10 years and people don't even <laughs> yeah. know who you are. Yeah, for about 100 pitches a year, it seems like. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so you know, the other thing, too, that I learned at this this UPI conference that Scott and I, we just uh, reconnected at um, a couple weeks ago, is I didn't realize, like, the level that, like, overseas baseball is, like, Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I mean, yep. it's, I mean, you tell me, maybe you're familiar, but it feels a little bit like the CFL is to the NFL. Like you can make, you can make really good money there. Yep. Um, there's fewer teams and you know, you're just kind of playing the same teams over and over and over again. Is that, I mean, is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I, I never played, I, I played over there as part of like an exhibition tour. So, uh-huh. you know, my experience was limited, but I mean, the guys that played over there, mm-hmm. I mean, Jason Standridge yeah. was at that retreat. And he mm-hmm. played in both American big leagues and Japan for 10 years. And, I mean, he would tell you that, you know, playing over there was as equal, you know, as exciting and, you know, momentous mm-hmm. as playing in the big leagues here. And one thing the Japanese always say is, you know, if, if the Americans hadn't invented baseball, we would have. <laughs> I mean, they love it that much. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and, and it's ironic that the best major league baseball player right now is from Japan originally. Yes, he is. O- Otani. The, maybe the best baseball player of all time. Okay. I'm sorry. I keep, yeah. I keep, yeah, all right, I, 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 I could nerd out about baseball all day because we're talking to an expert here, Scott Leinbrink and Tyler will introduce him here. In a second. <laughs> hey, we're going to do an official intro, yeah, here you'll in do an intro in a second, even though we've already been going, but yeah. Can you just quickly tell us how I'm, I, we're not a sports podcast, but I am fascinated by somebody that as a major leaguer, can throw 100 miles an hour and hit 450 foot bombs. What, as yeah. you, from your perspective, what has that been like watching him? Well, yeah, and I've just watched him. Uh, I'm only going to speak to my level of experience because I never had to face him, thankfully, oh, thankfully. Um, either in the batter's box or from the mound. But I mean, j- just knowing what I know about the preparation of what it takes to to craft, you know, your uh, area of expertise in being a pitcher. But then watching those guys, I mean, there was some guys that just lived in the cage. Mm. I mean, they never got out of there. And obviously it, it showed. I mean, they were some of the best hitters in the game, but they had to work at it. But to think about how you would have to spend equally amounts in the cage and out in the bullpen, you know, working on pitches and preparing for your next start, um, you know, and, and those starting pitchers have a routine. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're busy every day. People think they just show up once every five days and that's what they work, but they're working the rear ends off every other day too, to get ready. So to think that you're playing in a game that night and you have to do all of your stuff to get ready for your next start 
it's mind boggling and it obviously requires a high degree of talent. Yeah. 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 yeah he's amazing. And he's what, six, four, two. Th- I mean, he's just a Greek God. The beast. I mean, if, if God himself formed him to play baseball and said, this is what you're going to do with your life. Absolutely. <laughs> so if you yeah. were, and, and we're going to, we're going to get into it. We keep saying it, but if you were to like put a Mount Rushmore of the top four baseball players of all time, would he be on that? I mean, you mentioned he might wow. be. Now that's yeah, that's dangerous territory there. Yeah, I mean, there's so Uh-oh. many great players. Oh, don't worry. This I'm is not... going to be one of our clips for Instagram yeah. that we're just going to post and re- rerun. MLB Whatever your answer is, and they'll be networks listening. <laughs> I can assure you, one face that's not on it, and that's mine. And a lot of guys I played with, but um, no, I feel like Babe Ruth has to be on there. Sure, I yeah, mean, sure. Regardless of what you think about the guy, I mean, to see like the numbers that he put up at his you know day and age, mm-hmm. I mean, he was just doing things that nobody else in the game had at his time or for decades to come yeah um you know but then you think about you know some of the other great all-around players i mean my goodness um <laughs> mount rushmore isn't enough it, it, needs, yeah, it, it really isn't. um but yeah I'll, I'll take a stab at it so you know going to my era i mean some of the guys that were the most feared barry bonds yeah. uh mark mcguire um Edgar Martinez, Ichiro, you know, those were just to, to name a few and, you know, coming up and, and just, you know, for me, that was one, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but you know, you know, I, I didn't feel like I belonged, you know, because you see some of these greats that even I had, you know, watched in my teenage years and now I'm supposed to be on the same field competing against them. Uh, it was very intimidating. Yeah. 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 One, one name you didn't mention that was, I knew he was going to come my boyhood hero. Uh, Ken Griffey second Jr. Scott Linebrick was, yeah. was, Scott was number yeah. one, one. yes yeah. Scott number one had your jersey on my wall absolutely and then Ken Griffey Jr a, a distant second yeah uh, Griff, Griff was the man, man. yeah I got he, to play with him actually in Chicago and oh um, that's right yeah he, guy. yeah he ended his career well not ended but he was the later part of his career was there was yep. there in Chicago right so yeah yeah man every kid my I'm, a, I'm 35 so you know grew up like I said watching him and every kid it didn't matter where you were from you were a King Griffey Jr. Seattle Mariners fan. I mean, it, that's he right. Was, how many? He was how many kids learned to bat left-handed because of Griffey? Like I batted right-handed, uh-huh. but I emulated my swing after. I mean, it didn't matter. Yeah. Right-handed, left-handed. To your point, though, yeah. I'm sure a lot of kids picked it up. But yeah. you wanted to be King Griffey Jr. That's yeah. what everybody wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, so, and I didn't even mention the guy over my shoulder, Nolan Ryan. I mean, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. He wasn't I mean, bad. He, he wasn't was, bad. Yeah. It was whatever. <laughs> I mean, you, I mean, you, you got like, then you got Cal Ripken, like just longevity, right? Like you got someone that, that's right. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, yeah, we can go on all day. Yeah, anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're starting I, a second, I just second went, podcast. I just went through my list of names that I actually know from baseball. <laughs> I, I was going to say, you're kind of out of your, your realm. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, if it, if it's not Will Clark or Barry Bonds, I mean, I was, I was a Giants fan. And so that's how, I mean, yeah. I watched, so my dad worked in the city uh, when Scott was in San Francisco. So, I mean, did you cross with Will Clark? Or... No, 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 you were 10 um, years. Sorry, I'm sorry, I lied. Yeah. You were 2000. So first sorry, you were 2000. 2000. Yeah, yeah. But, okay. Um, but, yeah, Barry was there. Um, we had Jeff Kent. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember a little, yeah, I remember a little rift between them two, Barry and uh, Jeff Kent, a little, little yeah. Doug House spat. Yeah, Doug House. That's right. Yep. Dugout spat. JT Snow. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. Man, you're, you're bringing up Throwback. good memories for me. This is this is good stuff. Well, anyway, so uh, for those of you that uh, didn't pick up on it, uh, we we have a, a great guest today. We've got Scott Linebrink. He's an uh, 11-year uh, major league pitcher, uh, a number of teams. Chicago started with the Giants. Um, 
uh, let's see who the Braves. You finish your career with with Atlanta, but uh, he's got an incredible story. Like on the front end, reached the highest level of the sport. Um, but like what we talk like to talk about on this show is is what are we doing to impact this world? What are we doing with this one shot that we have? And and Scott is a perfect example of what we should look to emulate uh, when when it comes to maximizing your platform and then really just making an impact on people. And you'll hear he's making an impact not just in Central Texas where he's at, not just in the baseball community that he spends a ton of time mentoring younger players, connecting with younger players, you know, whether it be from a ministry standpoint. He's got a great podcast, Get in the Game, um, and also globally what he's doing to impact, and, and we're going to get into that with what he's doing with Water Mission. But, Scott, man, hey, again, thank you for taking some time today and uh, and jumping on with us. Guys, thanks for having me. Awesome. So let's let's go back. Let's uh, let's start uh, a wee little lad in Central Texas. Take take us back there and and how how the 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 young man became a professional baseball player, and then we'll pick up after that. Yeah, well, my my path was not the the standard path that maybe a lot of guys that played in the big leagues did. And matter of fact, I tell people all the time: if you just showed up at my high school field about my sophomore junior year and looked at surveyed the players that were on that field and the talent. Um, you would not have even had me on your list to play junior college ball. Um, oh. I was one of those guys that was just a late bloomer, one of the smaller guys, and was always like that because I was young for my grade. And so, you know, I really had to work extra hard to to hustle and and get the coaches uh, to pay attention to me and, and just notice me because I, I didn't have standout talent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it really helped develop my discipline and, um, and my hard work ethic. Um, and then, you know, growing up, you know, started to come into my own a little bit, even after high school. I mean, I, I really consider my college experience to be, you know, kind of icing on the cake or a, a, an opportunity that that probably would have passed most people by. But I was able to play at a small school here in Austin at Concordia. Oh, and yeah. um, my dad, my dad knew the coach. And so, you know, I kind of had an in. Um, he, he let me come out and, and try out and basically walked on. Um, and I was playing second base and third base. I mean, I always had a decent arm, but I wasn't even really pitching at this point. Mm. And um, and started pitching the end of my freshman year and and in the sophomore year. And then that's where things really started to take off and um, started to you know put on some bulk and and throw harder. It was a you know a lot of mechanics coming together at that time. Um, but again, you know, just just working hard and and um, and continuing to try to excel to the next level and. And for me at that point, it was just trying to get to division one, yeah. um, which I had an opportunity my junior year. I transferred into uh, te- to Texas state back then it was Southwest Texas, which I still say, um, <laughs> but we had a lot of junior college transfers coming in and we put together a great team, just a kind of a bunch of ragtag guys that, that came together and just played well. It was one of those team chemistry things that, you know, I'm sure like you guys have played on different teams where, you know, it just, you went out there and you just knew that you were going to win because you had a deep affinity for the guys that you were playing next to. And it was just a real brotherhood. And, um, there was probably about three of those teams, you know, from college on through pros that I look back on and go, man, I mean, that was the team right there. I mean, when you think of a team concept, um, but it was really special. So we, um, we made it to the regionals that year, um, a couple of wins away from going to the college world series. And so, you know, got some, attention from scouts that were there probably to, to look at other all Americans. 
Um, and I ended up getting drafted by the Giants in the second round. Second and so round. It, it, it was 56 yeah. over, okay. overall pick. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Yeah. So, so you're, you're clearly a humble individual. You said, I ended up mm. getting drafted in the second round. That doesn't just end up happening. I mean, that is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to I like know how nine. many select teams you were on and how many private trainers you used and then how much you marketed yourself on social media to get drafted <laughs> right, in the second round. Right. Yeah. No, oh, it, man. It, it, baseball has 900 rounds in a draft. So to get drafted second round mm -hmm. is unbelievable for somebody sounding like your story, like you said. You wouldn't have picked – nobody would pick you out of the lineup. So growing up, uh, there's a couple places I think we could go, but one is for sure, what was your mentality growing up? What were your goals? I assume mm -hmm. it was I want to be a major leaguer, but how unrealistic did that feel growing up? I think, you know, and, and a lot of guys would tell you, I always dreamed of being a big leaguer. And it was like once you made it, you finally achieved that dream that you always wanted to. Um, I think I grew up going to baseball games and watching guys like Nolan Ryan and Ryan Sandberg was a guy that I, I grew up watching for the Cubs. Um, and, and I just I always dreamed of what would it be like to be in those guys shoes? Mm -hmm. But I mean, if I'm honest, I would say I never thought that I had what it takes to actually do that. It was just some far off dream. Um, and, and certainly it may have, you know, inspired me to, to take the next step and to try harder. But I think I was just such a head down kind of guy that I was just looking at, you know, what's next, what's the next step. Yeah. And it was never about, you know, trying to get here in 10 years, but just, boy, it'd be great if I could just, you know, make my, I got cut. I mean, my freshman year of high school, I got cut from the baseball team. Wow. Um, and only because they, they, um, they made a uh, freshman team. You know, they didn't even have one. They had a JV and a varsity. And then they decided they'd, they'd cut enough guys that they could actually make a freshman team. So I kind of got invited back to be on the freshman team. Mm. You know, just little opportunities like that. I mean, you know, playing at Concordia, um, you know, which was basically a junior college experience. But, um, you know, that that gave me what I needed to take the next step. And without Concordia, I never would have made it to Texas State. And without Texas State, I never would have gotten the exposure to get drafted. So, yeah. It was just a, you know, I love the the saying that says, you know, um, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. That's right, that's right. And so, you know, that that was really my story of of just trying to be prepared for that big moment. And I love the name of this podcast because, yeah, sometimes you do get one shot, and um, and what are you going to do with it? And and preparation and hard work was definitely something that that um, you know, allowed me to shine in in the right moment. So you mentioned earlier your dad knew the coach. I, I want to kind of go down that path, right, in, in the discipline, the, the awareness at a young age that it's like, hey, I can't be, I can't be focused on the end goal. Like I've got to look right in front of me and I've got to, I've got to take this step first before I can take the next step. Um, what, was, what was your upbringing like, you know, with your parents? You know, what role did they play in your life, siblings? What was that dynamic? Yeah. So, uh, my parents were very involved. I mean, my dad always coached me growing up. Um, it was always about, you know, again, you know, drilling down into, you know, you got to work hard, you got to be ready. Um, I remember he was, you know, always one of the coaches. And so, you know, I've, I've, I vividly remember him coming home from work and I had to have all the equipment ready to go so that when he got there, we were loading up and we were heading out. I and that. I remember, you know, that being a fear of mine of, you know, what if I forget something, you know, I, I gotta make sure that I'm, I got everything ready so that, that we can go. And, you know, I, I'm not the cause of, you know, something missing. 
Um, and you know, all through high school, he was very involved. He, he wasn't coaching me anymore, but he was still going to games. Um, I was telling somebody this just the other day, you know, I, I, I came up in minor league ball before you had like online where you could watch games online. Mm-hmm. I mean, you literally had to listen to them on the radio. And so I'm playing in places like Shreveport, Louisiana and Jackson, Mississippi. My dad would actually call the radio station or the guy broadcasting the game and the guy would put the phone down next to the speaker while he was announcing <laughs> games that I was pitching so he could listen to the game. No so, way. Yeah. That's that's dedicated father. Involved. I love that. I love that. That's absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I always had support from my dad as well as my mom and both my sisters too. You know, they'd get on me if they, um, you know, didn't hear me giving them props <laughs> about being at hundreds of little league games and high school games coming up. Um, yeah. they were very supportive too, but you know, we were just an athletic family. Um, you know, my, my younger sisters played, uh, sports as well, volleyball mainly, but, um, but yeah, I, I had a great, uh, childhood, great upbringing. And, um, and yeah, I think that set me up for the future. All right, I want to take a quick minute to talk about our partner, Choctaw Casino and Resort. Uh, we are really, really humbled, uh, and grateful to be a partner for them. If you've listened to the show for any amount of time, uh, you've heard how great, the resort is there, how great the casino is, the new expansion. They've doubled in size, 3,000 new slots. They've got unbelievable sports bar. They've got unbelievable restaurants, unbelievable movie theaters, arcades for kids. It is endless, the things that they've not only improved but added. Um, but it's just an the, the experience that they provide is second to none. Choctaw Nation has done an incredible job with the community, with philanthropy, with support. Um, they have just done incredible things. So we are extremely humbled and grateful to partner with Choctaw Casino and Resort. Make sure, I know you know it, but it's just a short drive of 75. Go check them out. And now back to the episode. The idea of hard work, um, you know, your, your dad gave you responsibility. And, he, and that's one thing I feel like we lack younger parents with younger kids right now is we just want to take care of it we don't want to we don't want to put you in a situation where you can fail and we don't want like what is your thoughts on that right because you you it sounds like you were given some responsibility that's just one example i'm sure of your whole upbringing but your dad giving you responsibility letting you fail and then a little bit of fear of what would happen if i did mess up like walk through that like as a child and and the mindset that you had that like may it, it look I'm not saying this is it fits every kid because every kid is different, but may not be a bad thing to let your kids have a little bit of fear and let them and let them fail. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, you know, I, I think that that is something missing from today's society. We want to shelter our kids. We want to protect them. Um, you know, in, in some regards, we give them too much. Um, you know, I know, and it's a, a hot button issue, like with the phones and the devices. Mm-hmm you know, what age is appropriate. But, you know, the fact of the matter is a lot of these kids are young teenagers and they're getting phones, you know, and my oldest now is 15 going on 16. And, you know, we, we have given her a phone within the last 12 months. So Mm -hmm. like, it's fairly new, but we held off. We were one of the last parents to, to give in. Um, But in that regard, I feel like we're, we're giving them too much. Um, But then when it comes to other areas, like you're speaking about responsibility, um, you know, we're, we're trying to overprotect them. Yeah. We're trying to helicopter, um, yeah. and we're not giving them chances to fail so that, so that they learn from that failure. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's hard as a parent, right? I mean, um, each child is different. Each situation is different. And so it's hard to know what areas do I need to protect them and what areas do I need to let them fail so that they learn, but yeah. always 
the failure has to be a fail forward, right? Yes. So there has to be a lesson that comes from that. And, um, you know, some little things like, you know, my, my daughter forgot her lunch and she needs me to bring it to her. I mean, is that something where I say, you know what, sorry, you're going to have to figure this one out yeah. or, you know, I'm five miles down the road and so I can run it over to her real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, what's that teaching her? So, you know, these are always, there's a tension, there's always a battle, um, and like I say, I, I can't, there's no silver bullet or magic no. answer for any of these questions, but it is, it's one of the difficulties of parenting for sure. Yeah. I love, I mean, the example of the phones, right? It's yeah. so funny. It's like, Hey parents, we're going to give all this freedom on a, on a phone, huh. but we can't, we're not going to let you go play or ride your bike in the street. No, no, no. We're going to helicopter over the top of you. <laughs> That's a right. Point. Yeah. But like, no, no, no. Take the phone and go wherever you uh, want. Like yeah. Anywhere yeah. on the planet you can yeah. go with this phone, but we're not going to let you be out of eyesight mm-hmm. when you're riding your yeah, bike. I mean, point. it's 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 wild. You, you said something there. How hard was it for you? And again, you don't have all the answers. None of us have all the answers, but I'm a father of three young boys. You pretend to have all the yeah. answers sometimes, yeah. Ben. <laughs> I do. I do. It's, it's, yeah, it's my show. Uh, and Tyler's obviously the father of young kids. But for you, how difficult was that at first, that that learning curve of letting my children fail? I'm assuming you, your oldest was your guinea pig, kind of trying out some things. So how how hard was that for you at first? Because we talk about it all the time. We had just had this discussion about big conversations and big topics. You you need your kids to fail, but it's very hard to let them do that. How hard was that for you? Yeah, it's tough. And, you know, I often tell um, both of my daughters, I say, you know, hey, I don't know if y'all know this, but like y'all are my first kids. Like I've never had any other kids. So I'm figuring this out as we go to, um, you know, my wife and I you know, really try to uh, discern a lot from the Bible. Um, and of course there's no answers in there about it. What age is appropriate to give a child a smartphone, but you know, we can uh, derive a lot of wisdom from mm-hmm. books like Proverbs mm-hmm. on raising kids um, and knowing that, you know, if we raise them faithfully to know and love the Lord, you know, they're not going to depart from that. They're going to come yeah. back to it. Yeah. And I think um, just being honest with them and saying, hey, I don't know that this is the right decision, but this is the, the decision that we feel good about because we've talked about it. We've talked with other parents. We've prayed about it. Um, this isn't just something that is a knee-jerk reaction to a certain situation, and and we're just trying to limit you in every opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're truly trying to set you up well for the future, and we're trying to teach you to use something. And that's the thing I keep coming back to is, you know, we could shelter our kids from technology. We could shelter them from a lot of the things that we see out in the world. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, I'm three years away from my oldest being out of the house. And so when she goes out, she's going to have her own phone and whatever app she wants. I'm not going to be able to to monitor and police that. So I got to be in a position now where I've got to teach her to use that well. Mm-hmm. And I've got to try to guard her heart from some of the things that I know are dangerous for her. And, you know, who knows, maybe in three years, it may be more appropriate for you to, to have TikTok or, you know, Snapchat or something like that. But for right now, it's, it's not going to happen mm-hmm. because yeah. you, you still live under my roof. And, um, and man, we've, we've shed some tears in this house. Not, not so much me as much as my girls, you know, for just because you're, you're being unfair. Yeah. So yeah. your, so your approach is no social media while they're in the house. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? So we just, uh, did let her get an Instagram account oh, okay. and that was a big step. Yep. And I mean, there was like a full blown presentation on, you know, why mom and dad, you need to let me have this. And, <laughs> 
but here's the way I explained it. I said, you know, I, I have, a, I have Instagram and I said, the only reason that I got Instagram is because uh, I started my podcast and I want to be able to put that out there. Yeah. And I said, you know, from my child, I said, you know, here's what I'm doing with Instagram is I'm trying to put out things that are inspirational, things that are going to challenge people, mm-hmm. things that are going to be faith forward. And so, you know, and I, and I use this analogy because the Bible talks about us being a light on a hill for all to see. And I said, you know, social media is our hill. It's Absolutely. our chance to stand up where a lot of people can see us and we can be a light or, you know, we can we can spread darkness. We can spread hate and, and vitriol and, and evil. Um, so, you know, what, what are we going to choose to use that platform to do? I choose to use it for good. And I hope you do too. And, and of course we're in a trial period to monitor and make sure that she's doing it well. And I said, you know, you, you have to like all of my posts and, and, and repost what I <laughs> it is yeah, post, post my, my, my stories to, your, right. to, yeah. to yours. Yes. Comment on every picture. Uh. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was funny. Cause you know, I, I asked her, she's had it now for a few weeks and I said, Hey, I, I noticed cause I follow you too. I said, I noticed you haven't posted anything. She's like, yeah, I'm still waiting to, to try to figure out what my first post is. <laughs> so it's like, at least know, she's thinking through it. That. Right. Yeah. At least, yeah. She at least, at least yeah, she's but, not the one just I mean, filming herself sitting in a car, yeah. you know, and yeah. Yeah. But it is, you know, it's a pressure on the youth. Like, yeah. I mean, there's a pressure to be relevant. There's a pressure for, mm-hmm. you know, people to look at what they're doing and go, wow, look at that. And, you know, they feel like sometimes they can't live up to the world's expectations. And, and my, my word to them would be, you don't have to. You can be your own person. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm 35, like I said earlier. I struggle with Instagram, getting lost in the reels, looking at things that I shouldn't be looking at, comparing myself to people that, you know, are the other side of the world. I, I struggle at 35. I would have been horrible with social media as a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I love, because again, again, you, you, you said it yourself, you're not an expert, but it's encouragement to me hearing how you're approaching with your, with your oldest, you know, and how careful you are, uh, with her, with her, the mentality of approaching these things. I I appreciate you sharing that. That's really helpful to us. Yeah. Now uh, let's, let's jump to an era where social media, um, was just getting thought of like AOL instant messenger. So let's, let's go back to 2000. Actually, I'm sorry. Let's go to 97. We stopped last when you had just gotten drafted second round. What was that experience like? I mean, You'd mentioned, I never thought I'd make it there. Was there a time before draft day that either you came to a realization or someone said something to you where you're like, oh, I can actually make it to the bigs? Yeah, so there was about an 18-month window in there, and I would say it was from about my middle of my sophomore year of college until the end of junior year. Um you know, and really that was like two baseball seasons um, where things just started coming together. And obviously the jump to division one was a big deal. Um, there were guys that were, you know, going from there, getting a chance to play ball. Um, so I don't, I don't even think when I, when I made that jump to Texas state that it was like, okay, here I'm on my path now to, to pro ball. Um, but it was just, you know, I, man, we get to play Texas and A&M like this is, this is a big deal to me. That was the big leagues. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my first game, I think it might've been my first start was against A&M and went out there and struck out 10 and it's just like, Whoa, what's going on? Um, (laughs) you know, it really, it took me by surprise and, you know, immediately drawing interest of scouts and, you know, having to fill out. Uh, scout sheets and you know uh, personality surveys and and stuff like that 
Um, you know, and that's when I thought, wow, you know, this, this seems like it might be a possibility, but then as it got closer to draft day, we started hearing more specifics like, you know, Hey, this team's got this pick in the draft and, you know, we were slotting you somewhere between five and 10. And I remember the day before the draft, we got a call from the expos and they said, you know, um, we're, we're looking at Scott for one of the, um, one of our first picks and we've got the fourth pick in the draft. And mm. I mean, at that point, we're just thinking, are you serious? I mean, this, this could be like that. Mm. So it, it really, there was a, you know, and then from other teams, we, we heard all, oh, we think he's probably a day two guy. So, um, there was a lot of uncertainty and so much so that I chose on draft day on the first day of the draft, not even to be in the house. Um, I didn't have a cell phone at that point, And I, I told my buddies, I'm like, we're going to go play golf. So well, we went and played yeah. golf and just totally forgot about the draft and we're having fun. But at the turn, you know, my curiosity is killing me. So I, I go like literally to the clubhouse pay phone and call home and only to, you know, have my mom pick up the phone and everybody's screaming in the background. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> they said, you know, there's probably a hundred people that already know that you got drafted. Oh. So, um, of course, you know, that, that, uh, just kind of let the cat out of the bag and then came home and, you know, there's a big party, kind of an impromptu party. So, so it was not at all the experience of the guy sitting on the couch, you know, watching the draft and, and hearing their name chosen. But yeah, you were, you were special. the last person to find out, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, that's cool. So what was – take when, when your mom tells you, what's your, what's your, uh, what's your feelings in that, in that moment? Well, it was just, you know, a lot of things coming together like, okay, wow, you know, this is the team. So, um, you know, one of the first things my buddy said is, National League, you get to hit. So <laughs> <laughs> I was excited about being able to hit. Um, but then, you know, now we've got the negotiations for signing bonus. We've got to think about getting an agent, um, you know, and then as soon as you sign, you're off to some minor league team in the middle of nowhere. And um, and I still remember that day at the airport leaving and it was tough i mean because even though i had been away for college i was just right down the road in san marcus yeah um or concordia and so you know getting on a plane to oregon to go play in the northwest league and had a few hundred dollars in my pocket you know just to to take care of things when i got there and you know stepping into a complete unknown i mean i i gotta imagine i was 20 years old at that time i wasn't even 21 so I imagine for my parents, you know, that had to be real difficult. And I, I, I have thought about that, you know, putting myself in that same spot. I mean, that's five years from where I'm at now with my daughter. I couldn't imagine like just putting her on a plane to Oregon and saying, go get them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's moments in, in my life, and I'm sure others have shared this, that you, you, you have this big goal and you play it up in your head and it's going to be this, it's going to feel like this when I get there. And then you get there and it's like, well, that wasn't what I played it up in my head. What? you get on a plane to Oregon and you're riding in buses and you're playing minor league ball. Was there a, was there a gap there between what you had expected and what reality actually was? Yeah. I, I don't even know, honestly, that I had any expectations. And, um, you know, I think that's what some of the most rewarding experiences in life are often when you have no expectations sure. and you just, you're going in with eyes wide open. Um, but fortunately, you know, met some really good guys, guys that remained, friends for um you know still to this day and um and just you know knowing that we're all in it together um i think that was probably an easier transition for me than going to the big leagues because you know in the minor leagues you're you're kind of i mean you're, you're all within maybe two or three years of of development and so you know you got some guys that maybe just came out of high school some guys are juniors in college 
Um, but you're all within like a three year period. Um, when you, when you go to the big leagues, I mean, my first jump to the big leagues, I was 23 years old. And then oh, wow. there was guys that were 40 <laughs> and, you know, again, guys that I had watched on TV and it just, the disparity was so much greater and, you know, the, the level of experience and, you know, just the confidence, um, all of that, um, you know, and it, it wasn't, I know we could probably all sit here and, and say, you know, the game's changed. It's not like it was back then, but I mean, when I came up, it truly was like that old school style of rookies, like get your butt to the, yep. the front of the bus, mm-hmm. um, sit down in the back of the clubhouse. We don't, we don't even want to see you or hear you. And so it was very much just, hey, I'm I'm here just to try to do my job when I get in there, tiptoe around, not step on anybody's toes, and and just mind my own business. Scott, the games have changed hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, I mean you you have rookies. And I I didn't play. I played you know ten years behind you. I started about ten years behind that, and literally it was. I mean rookie hazing was completely part of the process. And it, I mean it wasn't like hurtful i mean back then there was there was stuff that crossed lines but i mean for the most part everybody did it and but it was part of it right there was there was a a humbling um a totally humbling uh effect for some of these rookies that i think benefited guys at that point to be able to be either create more longevity or, or to grow up faster the problem i think now is we got a bunch of kids coming out of high school or college uh, and I'm going to refer to football, but coming out of college that continue to be kids when they're in the league. And Ben Watson um, describes it. It's look, the NFL is like delayed adolescence. You don't, mm-hmm. not many guys grow up very much during, during that time that they're in the NFL. Cause they don't have to, people take care of things for them. Maybe your laundry's done, your meals are made, you're told what to do, where to go. There's not that much responsibility. And then, then on top of that, there's no humility within it. There's, it's hard to grow. I mean, obviously, experience, maturity, it, it does come, and I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. But to your point, it's totally changed. I mean, yeah. And it, unfortunately, I was a rookie in four different leagues, <laughs> so I had to go through the rookie hazing four times. But, uh, but I, I think that that look, I'm never ever one to to put anybody down, to degrade anybody, anything like that. But. I also am all about them carrying shoulder pads and helmets at the end of practice or being the last in line at food or getting up and singing on their chair. Like there's certain things that I think are, are important through the process and in athletics, I mean, it would be really kind of weird. Like if you're in the office and it's your first, you know, you just started real estate, graduated college and all right, all right, uh, Austin, stand up on a chair. Go ahead, and sing, go ahead, and sing. I'm a little teapot. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, it's like weird, but but I I agree with you. It, it's changed, and and you see it translate onto the field. And what now? What we're seeing is now young kids looking at these superstars that haven't been mentored or haven't been um, nurtured to to really mature much are now the idols of young kids and teaching things that may not align with what is i think helpful to you know the the culture that we're trying that we hopefully would be going back towards and i kind of stumbled through that a little bit but i i'm just thinking i think of all the kids that do the gritty all day and i'm not saying justin <laughs> jefferson 
Um, my five, my six year old uh, does the gritty. That, they can't <laughs> yeah. walk anymore. They yeah. literally only gritty everywhere. Like yeah. they, that's yeah. the only thing they do. And, and, and a great guy. And we actually had him on the podcast last year, the Super Bowl. Um, and, and I'm not saying he's being a bad example, but that's, that's how much of sponges young kids are watching professional athletes. Mm-hmm. So to be able to, to have these mentor, these athletes, help them mature and grow to recognize the platform that they have when they have it is important and humility is a part of that process that actually brings yeah. up a question you make some great points that actually brings up a question scott i'd be curious your opinion what do you think about kids idolizing athletes and mm-hmm. looking up to athletes what what's your general thoughts i don't want to lead that question too far what's your general yeah. thoughts on that um, well, I'm going to go back to, um, explaining that, you know, through the lens of faith, which I often do, but, um, I heard it said just recently, and I forget if this was a podcast or a book I was reading. Um, but it, the, the point was anytime that you, you look at the history of mankind, anytime a person is idolized, it's a disaster. Anytime man seeks to be that God head or that God figure, it's ultimately going to end up in disaster. And so man was not meant for worship. You know, we were meant to worship God. I mean, that's how we were created. And regardless of your thoughts on faith or denominations, um, you know, I believe that to be a biblical truth. And I believe the Bible to be the, the most informed uh, word that we can, you know, instructions for, for life. Um, So I, I think that you know, certainly you can't help that there are going to be sports athletes that that little kids look up to and go, man, I wish I could be him. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think is so important, though, is what that athlete chooses to take with that worship. Um, and there's there's an opportunity always to reflect. It's not me. You know, let me let me point you to somebody that's really worth worship. Mm-hmm. And I, I see guys do that throughout all of the sports. And I think it's a, a great way to maintain humility, one. Um, and and avoid disaster because anytime that we start to to um, you know be drawn to that that kind of worship, um, it's it's just going to be destructive for us. That's a, that's a great Understood. point. So you you go through the minor leagues. You only spent three years in the minor leagues, which is kudos to you because it, it can be a much longer slog for a lot of people. Man, it felt longer than that. <laughs> I, bet. I bet you aged you aged ten years in three years. I'm sure. What uh what was the call like? Take us back to that moment when you got the call that said, "Hey, hey, you're going to be head to the big leagues." Yeah. So I actually I I spent let's see one full season, two full seasons in the minor leagues, and then my third full season was when I first got called up. And it was two weeks into the season. So it was relatively soon, uh, you know, compared to the start of my career. Um, but then for the next three years, I was on that shuttle back and forth. Um, and I think the most I ever went up and down in a season is four times. But I think it was a total of 10 times over three years where I was up and then I got sent back down. Then I got called up and then back down. So, you know, there was a three-year period in there where I was kind of in that limbo, you know, trying to make it, you know, not quite ready to be there, but, you know, better than, um, you know, where I was in AAA. So uh, there were some injuries in there too. So it was really just a matter of things working out at the right time. Um, but the very first time I got the call up, I, I literally thought it was a mistake. I mean, I thought <laughs> there's no way I'm being called up right now. Um, I had just come off an injury year. Um, things were starting to click again, but I, I got called up to AAA for the first time and it was two weeks into the season and now I'm going to the big leagues. Wow. And it was really a whirlwind. Um, made my debut there in San Francisco. 
um, AT&T Park was brand new or whatever mm-hmm. they call it now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I remember running out from the bullpen. Of course, we're in San Francisco. It's in April. It's freezing cold. And, you know, the wind's blowing. It's just – that was one of the most uncomfortable places to play for yeah. me. I mean, you just you stand up on the mound. You feel like you can get blown over, and then you got to face Barry Bonds and all these guys. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I was on the Giants, so I didn't have to face Barry. Sure, yeah. But yeah. I remember it was against the Diamondbacks, and somehow I floated through that inning, got three outs, gave up a couple hits, but, you know, relatively unscathed. And uh, and came out of there just you know oh thank goodness that's over I hope I don't have to do that again <laughs> and uh, yeah it it happened six hundred more times after that so <laughs> so what one but thing I about think I, I, I thing, never lost that you know that yeah, interesting yeah. interesting one thing about San Francisco that I don't think people recognize it might be one of the coldest places in the United States it's a lot colder than you think yeah. which is wild because it really like stays between like high fifties and like low mid seventies, right? That's that range that, that it stays at. But for some reason, I've never not gone to San Francisco and been freezing cold. Like it, it's always <laughs> like you, you under prepare. Like it, it's just, it's just trying to just lure you in like, Oh no, t-shirts fine. That's why I think that's the number one sweatshirt sales location in the United States. Oh yeah. is San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, us Texans, we just assume, Oh, it's California. The yeah, weather's going to no, be great. No, no. it's, yeah. it's different. No, it's not. <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk about, I want to talk about the clubhouse. Um, you know, maybe just some insight on, on what, what it's like being a part of that, because that's, what's totally unique about baseball is, mm-hmm. is, is that time, right? You're, you're on the road, a hundred plus games a year. And, you know, or not on the road, but yet you're you're playing a hundred and what what is it now? One hundred sixty-two. Gosh, one hundred sixty-two. One hundred sixty-two yeah. games on the road for about half of them. I mean, long stints. You don't practice during the season, right? There's no official like practice practice because you play every day <laughs> every or day. every other day, right? <laughs> and so, yep. so walk through like what it's like in the clubhouse, right? That that team camaraderie aspect, and you know, is it is it a bunch of you know, is it twenty five on the roster? What's on the, what's on the, is it 25? 25. So Mm -hmm. like, is it 25 individual businesses that just show up and collaborate? Is there really kind of that team feeling because you go to football and it's very different, right? Like, it's like, Hey, we all live in the same area. We're all coming to the same facility. We're together all day practicing. And then we go to war together and Mm -hmm. baseball is just different. So walk us through the dynamic there. Good question. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, (laughs) First of all, there's a lot of different, I mean, playing for seven different teams, um, you know, with, with total different dynamics, even from year to year on different teams, um, the clubhouse looks a lot different. So, you know, you can walk into some places and I never played for the Yankees, but I mean, the Yankees, I always heard were just a very, you know, orderly business-like place. Everybody had their thing going. Um, I played on San Diego, which, you know, we were a really laid back team. The year that I got there, we were last in our division. We were at the beach. I mean, <laughs> half the people that showed up at the game were there in their board shorts and flip flops. And it's like, oh, let's check out the Padres and see what they're doing and grab a beer. Yeah. So, you know, very much a different atmosphere and very much more laid back in the clubhouse. I mean, I, I love, you know, you're talking about the arrested uh, development on or the, you know, delayed adolescence that, that Benjamin Watson talked about because I was laughing when you were saying that thinking, yeah, that's that's baseball right there. I mean, you got a bunch of 13-year-olds that never grew up <laughs> and we're just, we're joking around all the time. There's yeah. always jokes. And I think, 
I think baseball mentality breeds that because you mentioned you play every single day. You're always on. And so it's like you got to figure out how to get through this long season, which is, by the way, also another 30 spring training games. And then if you're lucky, you play 11 more games in the playoffs. So, I mean, you could play close to 200 games by the time it's all said and done. So you, you got to figure out a way to, to defuse, to, you know, decompress. And a lot of that comes through just acting like an idiot or having, yeah. you know, clubhouse shenanigans going on. And I mean, we, we play kangaroo court all the time to, you know, call guys out about, you know, stupid stuff that they've done. And, you know, you get fined, um, team dinners were a big part of, of team camaraderie. Um, we always, I tried to institute a bullpen dinner. So all the relievers would go out together um, when we get into a city and we'd go, you know, eat somewhere and, um, you know, stick somebody with the tab and then bail. Um, <laughs> but it, it really did a lot to just promote that camaraderie with guys. Um, but also just to diffuse from, from the situation of, of, uh, you know, having to go out. I mean, if you, if you were on every single day of your life for 200 days in a row, like what people think the intensity of the game was all the time. I mean, you, you would unravel, you you would literally work yourself into a frenzy. So Mm. you got to figure out how to turn it off and turn it on. And some of the guys, the best in the game, I really learned that from them of how, you know, they could be joking around, laughing it up and then boom, like dead serious. Yeah. So they knew how to flip that switch, but I'll tell you a quick story. You'll appreciate this. uh, You guys as football players, I remember, I, I can't remember who it was, but somebody from the league came in and, uh, and they wanted to, to experience like what it's like before a game. And, uh, and they come into the clubhouse and I remember them making the comment, like, what are you guys doing? I mean, the game is in 30 minutes. <laughs> Half of you aren't even dressed. Like some of you guys are playing cards and we're like, relax, man. We got 160 of these. Man. Yeah. <laughs> There's no need to get all worked up. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the difference because, and my wife always says it. She's like, after Friday, I can't talk to you. Like yeah. I like I have to stay out of your path because I go into like game mode literally, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, 36 hours before kickoff. And it's like locked in, like I don't want distractions. You can't pull me off my routine. Can and I know routine's a big part of it, but one thing I do love about baseball players, which I as I as I've met a, a number of former baseball players and and I do see baseball players transition pretty well is that they do learn that ability to turn on and off like that is they can Mm -hmm. be laser focused to where it's like, Hey, I can be, you know, you know, playing games in the clubhouse. And then, you know, 14 minutes later, I'm at the plate trying to hit 103 mile fastball. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the ability to do that, but I agree, right. To get through the season, you can't be so wound up and uptight. And yeah. I mean, I just, now you said the best players, you know, so like, if you think the best, right, you think like Jordan, Kobe, Brady, um, you know, Gretzky, these guys that were highly intense, highly competitive, um, but baseball, is that the same mentality? I mean, would they kind of carry that? Like, Hey, look, they're all about their business. They're here to do that. Or could those guys cut loose and be part of the guys as well? Uh, some of them could, you know, some of them were just in like a different league. Um, and it was tough for them, you know, to, to really integrate into the clubhouse life. I mean, some of it too, as I mentioned earlier, just the age difference. I mean, you got some guys that, you know, are at the height of their career or maybe on the backside of their career, they're hall of famers already. 
I mean, they're 35, 40 years old yeah. and you may have a clubhouse full of 25 year olds. So like there's almost a generational gap in there. Um, so sometimes that can be difficult, but, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I think of guys that I played with like Jim Tomey. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jim Tomey, here's a guy hit 600 home runs in his career. I mean, just, uh, it was one of the highlights of my career to be able to play with him. And he was just a genuinely nice guy. And I think anybody that knows Jim will tell you the same thing that, I mean, here's a guy, he'd be on his way to the cage, nails on uniform, like ready to go. And he would stop at your locker and, and ask you, you know, how your day's going and have a genuine conversation with you for five minutes and then be on his way. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think of a guy like, I mean, just because they're hall of famers, they don't have to be distant. They don't have to be Mm. disconnected from the clubhouse. Um, but yeah, they, there was definitely guys that did that better than others. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Tomey was a, was a stud, you know, for a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons he was never linked to the whole steroid deal. Yeah. And that's right. so to be able to hit 600 home runs fully natural, I mean, that, that's yeah. an unbelievable accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's cool to hear behind the scenes on how he was. Yeah, Cause he seemed like a, just an everyday dude also. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. you, you tell me if I'm, if I'm, if I'm wrong about that, but he just seemed like a normal oh, right. average dude that just happened to be unbelievably awesome at baseball. Yeah. And, and I would say that was my experience with 98% of the guys I came across. I mean, these, these guys are just, a lot of them from humble backgrounds, a lot of them, you know, hard workers, um, you know, and just really, truly appreciative for the opportunity that they've been given and, yeah. and still maintaining that kid at heart type mentality. Yeah. What, so I was just going to say, one thing I've always been curious about baseball, because Tyler mentioned football, it's 18 games, what, 17 games, yes. you know, yeah, you get a long off season. Baseball, you're spending however many months during, during the season. What's family life like? How do these guys manage? Do their kids live with them in this? I mean, I'm sure everybody's different, but do do a lot of them live in the same city and grow up in the same city they're playing in? How how do they manage raising a family with with the demands of a baseball season? Yeah, it's certainly tough. Um, you know, you, you Tyler, you mentioned you're gone half the time. I mean, you, we we go on a six day, ten day road trip, and then we're home for six to ten days. So you know, that's kind of the rhythm week on week off. Um, it definitely takes a strong wife, um, you know, just to keep the house down and, um, you know, a lot of family support. I know we got support from both sets of our parents. Um, you know, you get traded, you know, now you got to move to a new city. I mean, I had, uh, at least two trades that happened mid season. And so, you know, trying to shuffle kids and dogs and cars and clothes and everything that it takes to live for, you know, the next few months, um, you know, we definitely relied on a lot of family support for that. Um, but yeah, we just, you know, my wife and I tried to make a, a home wherever we were at. Um, you know, that a lot of times it, the baseball season was really, or baseball schedule was conducive to, you know, young kids. And, and we just had young kids. We, we didn't get to school age when we were still playing. Um, but it was fun to, you know, wake up at 10 o'clock in the morning and hang out with the girls and, mm-hmm. You know, we'd put them in the wagon and go down and, and take them for a walk and come back. And about the time they were going down for a nap, that's when I got to head to the field. Mm. So, you know, and then uh, Kelly was great about, you know, letting them take a long nap and then feeding them supper and 
take them to the ballpark. And of course we didn't get home till midnight. So we had this like crazy baseball sleep schedule, <laughs> but, um, it actually fit pretty well with young kids. Yeah. Oh, did y'all, awesome. did y'all stay living there year round or would you go, did you have a home base in the off season? Man, I was getting back to Texas as quick as I could. I mean, yes. that last out is made, and the car is loaded, and we are yes. gone. Yes. <laughs> For all of that month and a half I always get felt, off. I always felt guilty yeah. about that is, like, if you know you lose your last game, typically there's only one team that's happy about that last yeah. out in baseball, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but I always felt guilty. It's like, I can't wait to get out of here. Like, I cannot <laughs> wait. Like, I feel like I should be more disappointed that the season's over. But, like, I am I was ready to go home. Like, I could <laughs> yeah. not wait to get home. So, I get that. I want to talk, Scott, really quickly just about, um, like, leadership, right? It, and within the clubhouse and, and how that how that played out. And because it's such an – baseball, in my mind, is such an – there's so much onus individually on yourself, right? To be prepared, to be locked in, to do your job, right? There's there's a ton of 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 working together, um, you know. Obviously, defensively, um, but how the best leaders within in clubhouses? What did that look like? And then for you, just knowing you and seeing how you interact with with you know other baseball guys, like that's a role I'm sure that you stepped into. But what? How how did that dynamic work? Yeah, it's, I mean, you can attest to this too, Tyler. I mean, being in a room of whether it's 25 or 55 guys, you know, you're all alpha males. I mean, every one of you in your own right is a stud. Mm -hmm. I mean, you wouldn't have gotten to that point if you weren't. And so, you know, now you put all of those alpha males in a room. I mean, you know, it doesn't work that way in a wolf pack. You got one alpha male and the rest of them follow. So, you know, how, how do you create leaders and followers? And, um, And I think, you know, the whole idea of servant leadership, you know, really comes to the top of mind because I I saw guys do this, like just simple things, you know, picking up something, you know, a guy gets up and, you know, you pick up both of your plates and take it over instead of, you know, just leaving it there for him to take, Um, you know, going out of your way to help people. um, I think that really um, played in spades in terms of just, showing my teammate that I care about them, that I'm willing to go the extra mile to do something for them, sacrifice myself, my time, you know, and again, a lot of them were just very small acts of kindness in the clubhouse. Um, but I think it's very important. And I think the guys that, you know, didn't do that, you know, that, that it became real apparent to the ones that were more self-serving and yeah. were there for themselves. They were trying to get their next contract. They were, you know, driven by the money, whatever the case may be. Um, but yeah, leadership, definitely has a place um i think you know when it it comes down to the you know the really tough tough times i mean that's when you see true colors come out too and um and definitely you know there were there were guys that were just natural born leaders and guys that had to be brought along Mm -hmm. and i saw you know some of those older veteran guys you know pull guys aside and say you know, Hey, you know, I see that you did this. Let me tell you maybe a better way that you can do that next time. Mm -hmm. Not embarrassing them, not calling them out in front of guys. Um, and then there was other instances where that was not done well, where it was a call out situation. And I just, I never saw a guy respond well to that kind of, uh, tongue lashing or, you know, embarrassment. Um, you know, so I, I always wanted to be a guy that was, you know, more of a shepherding kind of guy come alongside somebody and, Hey, let's talk about this. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, and, and the same holds true in parenting. Like I, I don't do my best parenting when I'm mad and emotional, you know, I do it when, you know, the, the dust is settled and we can say, Hey, let's talk about this and how we can do it different next time and how we can learn from each other. I want to take a quick break and thank our partners sleep number and highlight a couple of things they're doing. Guys, these sleep number beds are unreal. The technology that they've created the feedback that it gives you on your sleep. I've got the app opened up right here. They tell you things like your heart rate, your heart rate variability, your breathing rate, all these type uh, metrics and feedback to give you so that you can improve your quality of sleep. They're all over the place. You can go and check yourself out a sleep number store wherever you live. Go to sleepnumber.com as well. They've got great resources on there. We just talked about this not too long ago. They have a whole blog section, all these articles, things that you can improve your health. Sleep number is definitely changing the game when it comes to betting. So get yourself to sleep number, get yourself to sleepnumber.com and check them out. Now back to the episode. Yeah, yeah so true. We just had that I, conversation. I, yeah, I told the story and I won't go through the story, but yeah, it, you're exactly right. You don't make great decisions when you're emotional <laughs> and upset. <laughs> no. I, I want to get to what you're doing today. I mean, we could talk all day about yeah. your career and, and, and how and how awesome of an experience that hold, was. Hold on, before we go there, I, you mentioned Kelly and you mentioned, yeah. uh, and, and you say, you've said we a lot. Yeah. About like when, you know, we got drafted, we found out we, 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 and I love that. That's one thing that people, I don't, I say I do the same and I don't wreck, I don't even realize it. It's not even a thought in my head because of, of the things that my wife and I have gone through together through our Mm -hmm. journey and story. Uh, But you take us to that. When did, when did y'all meet and you know, when did y'all get married? Yeah. So we knew each other, um, growing up, um, actually probably around high school age and her best friend, uh, went to church with me. And so I had always known about this and both of them were Kelly. And so I'd always known about this Kelly Anderson and seen her at youth group events. And, um, and yeah, we, we kind of crossed paths over time and we knew some of the same people, but, um, didn't really start dating until, um, I was off playing ball. I was in Houston at the time she was at A&M and, um, and our paths crossed, you know, just kind of a chance meeting. And, um, we actually just celebrated our 20th anniversary this week. Awesome. And so congrats. thank you. We had a chance to go back and tell some of these stories and it, um, you know, that was one of the things that she commented on is it's just amazing how, you know, our paths literally like we started on the same path and then we kind of went our different ways and how, you know, we reconnected, um, and how, if it had not been for that exact moment in time, you know, our relationship wouldn't have worked out. And so just, just seeing God's hand in that was really cool. Um, but yes, you're right. I mean, she, she was with me for the whole ride. Um, maybe not quite all the minor league stuff. She came along (laughs) at the right point, but, um, you know, she likes to say that, that she was the straw that stirs the drink and that, after we got married, that's when things that's really when it took actually off. happened. That's right. It, that's it, right. it literally couldn't couldn't be any more similar to Tiff and I's story. Same deal. Yep. Really. Same same, same story. Yeah. Um, so, 2011, you finish up with the Braves. What were you ready to be done? Was it? What was that? What was that ending like? Yeah. So I actually uh, played the next year in 12. We signed with the Cardinals and made the team. I mean, I was a a non-roster guy, so I had to make the team and made it and then proceeded to get hurt in my final spring training outing, um, went on the DL um, or the IL now. I can't say DL. Um, But yeah, I kind of, you know, was, was working my way back and 
it never really uh, came together for me. And, and I, I got to a point where I decided, you know, this is, well, actually I got released. So they decided for me. Yeah. Um, but then it was, you know, Hey, if I'm going to, if I'm going to, you know, come back from this, it's probably going to have to be something surgical. Yeah. And, um, and I ended up having surgery several months later, but at that point I was 35. Um, the writing was on the wall. If I was going to continue my career, I was going to have to go back to the minor leagues and prove that I was healthy and, kids were getting into school and I'm just like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not ready to do all of that. Um, so yeah, I, I, my retirement was very unceremonious. There was no, uh, press conference, which, uh, I had one coach say, if you don't have a press conference, you don't retire, you just quit. So (laughs) so I just, I quit. Um, and then, uh, but I would say I was ready. I mean, it was a 15 year run from the time I got drafted till released. And, um, and so, you know, I was ready to be a dad, um, you know, move on with the next stage of life, uh, decided to go back to school and finish my degree. And, um, and yeah, you know, kind of, you know, started a whole new path from there. All right. So quickly, yeah. Run through what that, like two years after, after quitting, um, what that was like. And then, and then I want, I want to talk about water mission and what you're doing with that. Um, yeah. cause it's, it's incredible. Um, but yeah, talk about those two years and what mentally, what it was like. I mean, you played ball your entire life. Now you're done. What was that like for you? And, and, and yeah, and the impact that it had maybe on your relationship in, in your in your in your marriage. Yeah, well, so you're right. It was about a two year period. Um, I would say I did not think that I would struggle at all. I thought, you know, man, I'm going to leave baseball behind and not look back. Um, you know, was immediately asked if if I had any interest in um, you know continuing a career in baseball, whether it be coaching or front office, and I said, no, not really. I mean, I'm just, I'm ready to leave this behind. I, I don't like the travel. Uh, it's not conducive for a family. I just want to be home, you know, really. Um, so, you know, I stepped into, you know, going back to school. Um, that was probably almost a year after retirement, which I'm glad I did that. It was very difficult for me because I'm I'm now a 38-year-old or 37-year-old junior in, in college, um, having to go back and take some of these, you know, tough classes and, and complete my degree. But um, I did that and, you know, was proud of the accomplishment and showing my kids that education is important. Um, but really, when you talk about Water Mission, it was right during this time that we were introduced to Water Mission. Um, and my wife and I just had heard about it. Um, through a friend of ours that recommended it and said they were doing great work. And um, one of the pivotal moments I think of my life was when we were asked to go on a trip to Haiti and Kelly and I left our girls here with our parents and we went to Haiti and we thought we were doing something maybe a little bit reckless, um, but we decided to to go and do it. And it really just opened our eyes to um, a whole nother worldview you know, and, and our, our world, you know, and you guys can attest to this. I mean, when you live in a clubhouse environment, you know, in professional sports, I mean, that's not real world. No. I mean, there's so many things. I mean, to your point, Tyler, I mean, anything that you want done, you can have done. I mean, you can have somebody take your dry cleaning, go wash your car. I mean, just anything that you have, I mean, make me something to eat. You know, it's just, you snap your fingers and it gets done for you. And so, you know, to leave that environment and then go to a third world country, where people don't have enough money for, for basic needs. They don't have water. They don't have food. They don't have shelter. You know, the, the three most basic needs, there's no justice. 
Like these are the things that just, you know, really rip your eyes wide open. And so, you know, that really started me on a path of, hey, what does this next chapter of life look like? Um, I was confronted with a book at that time um, by Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavor. And it talked about how we're made for work. And I think all along I had this idea that when I get done playing baseball, you know, I'll probably do a lot of different things, but I get to do whatever I want. Um, and it was really a selfish mindset. And, you know, I, I don't think I would have told you that back then, but looking back on it now, I think that's totally what I thought. Um, but what I realized is that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm being groomed for something else, for a, a bigger purpose, for something bigger than myself. And so, you know, when the opportunity came along to go to work for Water Mission, um, you know, I, I really felt that I was being led in that direction. And I'm glad um, that I had that opportunity. And I'm glad that I'm doing something that I'm accountable for my time. I'm accountable from, you know, a talent standpoint and how I'm, I'm, I'm using everything that God's given me um, to give back and to encourage others to give back too. And it's, it's something that, you know, like that trip to Haiti, I get to take other guys on and ladies on trips and show them, you know, here's the kind of impact that we can have. Um, professional sports can be a wonderful platform for some of the greatest causes in the world and, yeah. and really, you know, righting some wrongs. Yeah. yeah. You talk about, you know, we do, we've done however many of these episodes and, and interviews and learn different people's stories and, and the transition is always tough and, and, you know, some people do it better than others. And, and just as humans, we're not great with idle time. We need something to look forward to. We need something to work for. As you said, we're designed to work. Uh, for me, it was tough because I didn't have, I, I, I was done all of a sudden for, sooner than I hoped to be. And I didn't really have a backup. I didn't really have something else I could focus on immediately. Um, I think of Darren's story. He did have something. He was, I mean, it was like two days after he retired, then he went and worked at ESPN. So he didn't have a big transition time. And so I, as, as I learned from more people, I think that's, you know, there's probably a lot of keys, but I think one of the keys is having something, having a next mission. You've had a mission for so long. You've had a tribe of people around you for so long. It's finding that next tribe and mission, as, as a former guest phrased it. So what was it about water mission for you that said, okay, this is where I want to allocate the next phase of my life? What, what was it about that? I'm assuming the Haiti trip had something to do with it. but Yeah, the Haiti trip had a lot to do with it. Um, there was a lot of people in my life, mentors, you know, folks. I mean, Tyler, you and I are both a part of uh, PAO, Pro Athletes Outreach. Um, there was a lot of great mentors that I had, you know, through that network, um, that really showed me one, I mean, a guy like Steve Stenstrom who left a successful NFL career and now he's going on to be a leader of men and women. Um, so, you know, uh, people that, that were, you know, taking advantage of, of what they had been given and realizing that, you know, it's not just about the pro career. And I, I think that's a, the hardest part for a lot of guys that leave the game is they think, well, I had my shot. You know, I did the one thing um, that's, that was, that is going to be the biggest thing that I'll ever do. And, um, and I love the quote that talks about, you know, what it means to live an extraordinary life. That it's not about doing one thing extraordinary. It's not about winning a Super Bowl or winning a world series or hitting a walk-off home run or scoring a game winning touchdown it's about doing the ordinary every single day. Mm. And so by, by waking up in the morning and choosing to be a leader in my house, um, a wife or <laughs> a husband to my wife, a father to my kids, um, holding down a job, you know, doing something for an industry that's bigger than myself, serving others. 
Um, I think those are the things every single day that when you look back on it, you can say, you know, that guy lived an extraordinary life because he did those little things every single day, not because he did that one grand thing that, that, you know, is the first thing we read on Wikipedia, yeah. uh, but because he did the little things and he was consistent and he lived a life of integrity. And that's, that's what I want to try to do. That's really yeah. good. I love really that. Good. Yeah. I yeah. love that. I, yeah. Scott, I, I just, we're just super thankful for the time and, and the insight and, and again, I, we'd love to get you back on again because there's so many other things I think that that we can. Yeah, we can, can you briefly into. tell us what exactly Water Mission oh, yeah. does before yeah. you? Yeah, before <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are a Christian engineering organization, and we basically do water projects. We bring water to people in small rural communities. We call them last mile communities, but basically they have no water or sanitation infrastructure. Many of them are are drinking out of shallow wells. Um, out of contaminated sources, they're getting sick, and then just seeing the ripple effect—pun uh, intended there—but um, you know, seeing how that that plays into public health, into the economy, educational opportunities, all of it is hampered if you don't have safe water. Yeah. And so, basically, we're just trying to go in and provide as much safe water as we can to as many people as we can. And we're sharing the good news of the gospel while we do it. See, I love that. Yeah, yeah, most people are probably listening to this on audio, but if you're watching on YouTube, you've got an unbelievable picture over your left shoulder. Yeah. What's uh, I love that picture. What's the story behind that one? So that's a kid from Tanzania. This was actually, when I went to work for Water Mission, this was the first project that I got to, to help promote. Um, but basically, we came into a refugee camp that had 50,000 people in it. And the UN was handing out bottled water and they were spending tens of thousands of dollars per week just in bottled water. Wow. And so they came to us and they said, we've, we've got to have a better solution. And so water mission came in, we put in filtration equipment, uh, pumps, generators, we we're pumping water out of a river, treating it and then distributing it throughout the camp. Um, and then the UN came and said, you know, we love the work that you've done. We, we want to expand this. We want to do more work with you. Um, but basically water mission made the decision to send all that equipment and resources without knowing how we were going to fund it. And mm -hmm. so it was basically up to us to go around and, and share the opportunity with, uh, with other folks. And a lot of baseball players jumped on board and, and they said, we'll help out. And it was, a uh, it was one of those decisions that, you know, it was the right decision to do. But at the time we had no idea from a budget standpoint, how we were going to cover it. And, um, and some, some great people came forward and, and made it possible. And, and so I look at that picture right there and I think, you know, you, you reduce it down to the individual. I mean, we talk about big numbers and budgets and, you know, number of people in a refugee camp, but you know, for that person right there, it, it made all the difference in the world for them. That's awesome. I love that. How can they find water mission? Yeah, go to watermission.org and check us out. We do a lot of work in disaster areas. We're, we're very involved in the Ukraine. Uh, we did work in Pakistan this year with all the flooding. Um, and then our we do a lot of community development projects, long-term, you know, permanent projects that are going to be there for generations. Uh, we do that across Latin America, Africa, and Indonesia. But um, it's, a, it's a 501c3. It's a charitable organization. They do a great job with their resources. They spend the money well. And, uh, and they serve the people that, that we say we're going to serve. We, uh, we talk about it a lot and, um, not only as, as adults, um, but you know, as parents, uh, one of the best things that you can do is go serve, go serve somewhere outside of, mm -hmm. of where you live. 
um, because we just get wrapped up in this bubble and we think this is what everybody lives like. And, and especially in North Texas and Central Texas as well, you know, two areas that uh, have benefited tremendously over the last, you know, a couple of decades um, with growth and prosperity. And, and But go serve. And if your kids are at an age where they can join, I highly, highly encourage it. Um, and so I, if this is something that interests you, um, you know, giving communities clean water. I mean, like you said, it's the foundation. You know, you can go, what, how many weeks without food? Uh, but you, you can't go more than three days without water. That's and right. So, so this is this is foundationally important. And so go on watermission.org, and, and, and I'm sure that there's resources there that you can find. Reach out, connect with them. And if there's an opportunity in this, and, you're, and you're being called to and you feel something tugging on you, and, and as you're hearing Scott talk or as you're doing some research on this and, and you feel something in your stomach, um, I say that's the Holy Spirit, but, it, but f- listen to it. Whatever you think that it is, mm-hmm. listen to it and reach out, and I guarantee you it will change your life for the better. Go serve That's someone right. else and experience something like that. So uh, highly, highly encourage that. Scott, man, appreciate you. Good yeah. word, Tyler. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's all about serving. That's right. I love That's it. Right. I love it. Well, hey, all the best to you, man. Happy 20 years. Give yes. our best to Kelly. That's, Thanks, that is awesome. That is impressive. And uh, and good luck with the TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> and the gritty. That's the right. gritty, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, just pray for patience with me when my boys walk into the house from school. <laughs> I can't. I can't anymore. <laughs> Scott, we appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. You bet. All right, Love man. what you guys are doing. Keep it up. All Thanks, right. Scott. Thanks, Talk everybody. Soon.